Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marcia Brownlee. I hope you're all having a great week. We are joined today by Becca Aceto. Hi, Becca. Hi, Marcia. How's your week? Um, you know, it's been really long and exhausting, and I'm excited that today is the start of my weekend, and Yay. I probably won't be doing all that much exciting. It's so hot, I can't fish and like feel good about it in the middle yes. of the day. So. Yes. That's get creative in years like this. Yeah, that's been, uh, I've been having, yeah, that's messed with my Friday afternoons. Um, that's all. <laughs> I have nothing more to say, no. but <laughs> not being able to fish in the afternoons has, has realigned my end of the week um, decompression system. Well, you guys in Montana, you actually have restrictions that go into place that don't let you fish right I don't know if that's on your home river or not it's not in, my in Idaho we don't yet. even have those oh ever no so it's like you have to be a very conscious angler and decide what is right and what is wrong individually they don't make you do anything that's good to know yeah for Montana the um the agency will institute hoot owl restrictions which are time limitations on when you can fish and when you can't and they do that when the river is consistently above a certain temperature. And that was true for like the Madison River and a couple rivers in southern Montana months ago. Um, and I think it will soon be in my home river, but not as of yet. But I think that's a good thing to know is that not every state implements hoot owl restrictions. So anglers really need to be aware and make the right choice. Um, no, I was thinking when you were talking about fishing, I was thinking of something totally unrelated, which was the fact that um, the shirt I'm wearing right now has this massive pocket and it's like everybody complains about women's clothing or women's pants not having pockets for like outdoor gear and fishing gear. And my shirt has this massive pocket and it's full of chicken eggs right now. <laughs> and it looks like I have saggy boobs, which is like totally lovely saggy to boobs. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, maybe we don't have great pants pockets, but we have great shirt pockets and they're good for everything from eggs to fishing gear. I love it. <laughs> you can tell it's later in the week with kind of the randomness of the brain patterns and <laughs> the thoughts that are popping into everybody's head. I love it. Um, I could go on a tangent there, but I won't. Instead, I'm going to introduce our guest today, Emily Cram. Hi, Emily. Hi, how's it going? It's good. How are your pockets today? <laughs> I am pocketless at the moment, actually. Which, yeah. yeah, that's always a conundrum sometimes when you leave the house pocketless. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in favor of, and maybe I just need to do the right Google shirt search but more yoga pants with side pockets because a lot of them now will have that back pocket but that's just a sweat zone for me I would need more side pockets yeah the side pockets yes I do agree with that they've been they come in handy um <laughs> Becca when you when um you when I introduced you I was thinking a couple podcast episodes back when you mentioned you still had a freezer full of 
Was it huckleberries? I think it may have been huckleberries. Yeah, the ones that I hoarded all year. Yeah, the hoarded huckleberries. (laughs) Um, And I was picking huckleberries last weekend and I was wondering if you um, had made space and what you made with your hoarded huckleberries. Um, I have made space. I haven't been picking any, so it's awesome that you have some already in Montana. Um, I've been eating them every morning on my cereal. Nice. That's a lot of cereal. Like... (laughs) I mean, way to make it last is what I meant to say. I just, like, (laughs) I remember thinking a while ago, I was like, what is my guilty pleasure? And it's like cereal with milk at all hours of the day is my guilty pleasure. So, yes, it's a lot of cereal. Marsha, thanks for reminding me. (laughs) Sorry. I think my guilty pleasure is um, chips and salsa at all hours of the day. That's my fallback. (laughs) Just the crunch. Emily, what's your guilty pleasure? Oh, I, I mean, these are super tame guilty pleasures. I, I, mean, I know. I just, I, I just love tacos. Like always, I can eat tacos every night nice. or lunch or breakfast you, tacos. Like we, we really could do anything. <laughs> being being near the coast too, you can like have seafood tacos or red meat tacos or chicken I feel like you have way better options over there yeah <laughs> yes, there are the options are open <laughs> uh I feel like this is a good segue to what's in your freezer Emily ah yes um so to mix things up because I think you guys get a lot of similar things sometimes but uh, I'm gonna go with scallops and strawberries and turkey feathers. Or three big okay. things right now. Follow up question. <laughs> um, yeah. um, did you har- harvest the scallops and the strawberries yourself? So my um, my boyfriend scallops in the winter, and so it's a common thing to kind of like make hay while the sun shines and kind of load up and bulk up on the scallops when they're harvesting them in the winter. So we'll um, package up and freeze a couple gallons at a time, um, which is then nice to be able to thaw them very easily for a meal later in the season. Um, Delicacy here in Montana. Yeah. Yeah. And it is here too. Um, And it's like seasonally fresh for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say frozen and thawed and then sauteed and butter, like in July is still delicious. Like I don't, I'm sure some people could tell the difference of being frozen, but we don't, to be honest. Um, and then, uh, strawberries, we just closed out the pick your own strawberry season. Um, and so I try to bulk up on strawberries, raspberries, and blueberries um, in the summer to then have frozen berries for smoothies and snacks and baking for the rest of the year as much as I can. I think uh, strawberries, so first off, there's, uh, we just had, we just finished up our book club conversations for Braiding Sweetgrass, and she has an awesome chapter about strawberries. Uh, but mm. they are like a fresh picked strawberry straight off the vine is like one of my favorite things in the whole world. It's pretty special. <laughs> it's almost like it's not even the same fruit as what you get in the store. 
it's true so sweet and just it's... melt in your mouth yep and Very then I true. go through this this like five minute period where I'm like this grew here on this plant <laughs> like nature made this this thing is real and just like the sense of wonder and awe inspired by an amazing strawberry <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty great to have that kind of connection and and to know that they'll be back again next year is mm-hmm. nice too mm-hmm. um and then turkey feathers what are your plans for those so i um learned a trick so i collect a lot of turkey feathers i mean i turkey hunt but then um hiking around walking around our property we you know you find turkey feathers and in your travels and so if it's a good one I'll I'll keep it to kind of add to the collection um or I've made wreaths or various different house decor I guess you would say but I always try to um and this is something I just learned recently is freeze them for 24 hours uh, when I get them because they can carry mites mm-hmm. um, and they'll start uh, disintegrating the feather over time and I haven't heard any like horror stories of them like getting into your house and destroying things but I have seen evidence of like just the feather itself kind of starts to deteriorate um, and I don't really want to think about what it would be like if it kind of like traveled into my house or what that would mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I've gone once I learned that, I then was like taking every feather I had down and freezing them. And when I had space in the freezer and, um, and it doesn't hurt, put it that way. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like it hurts. I'm going to go put my feathers in the freezer <laughs> right after this podcast. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, Emily. Uh, well, I was born and raised in southern New Hampshire um, and was not uh, introduced to hunting or much fishing uh, my entire life or my family uh, wasn't really into it and then went to school um, in college I headed west and um, ended up doing a Knowles uh, semester the National Outdoor Leadership School in Wyoming and from there got hooked in with um, horse packing and I'd had horses my whole life prior to that so that was a familiar kind of place for me Um, and then went worked at a hunting outfit out of uh, in the Wind River Range out of Pinedale Wyoming, uh, which I think a piece of me is still in the Wind Rivers at the Green River Lakes. Um, for those who are familiar with that, it's a pretty special spot. And uh, worked for an elk and moose hunting outfit there, which is where I was kind of introduced to hunting um, and was just really fortunate to be introduced to it with a, a great family outfit that was very responsible um and respectful operation that you know was willing to teach me along the way of what they do um and you know open the doors for more uh animal conservation of being members of the rocky mountain elk foundation and to this day um this is 
2009, I guess it was to this day. I've still been a, a member, uh, even though there are no elk in Maine. Um, but it's something that uh, really stuck with me um, and has basically then uh, continued to form who I am today, I guess. And from there, kind of, I had never killed anything. I was um, responsible for packing out the kills for the clients and helping cook and manage the horses and mules, which was perfect for me, but was still like elbow deep in elk carcasses every day, but just hadn't like connected all the dots of uh, glassing, pulling the trigger, finding, you know, following up on your kill and then, um, you know, going through that emotional process. And um, I would just show up and it's already dead and gutted and I would finish quartering it and load it and off we went. <laughs> um, and then eventually stayed out West for a little bit longer, finished, finished school out there. Um, and then moved back to Maine and was fortunate enough. Um, so my whole family has been from Maine, except for me. I was born in New Hampshire. So I always wanted to be in Maine um, as a kid and just ironically kind of ended up back here and um, got to know a group of people um, within a previous relationship that he was a big hunter and that like opened the door and enabled me to kind of get the boots on the ground experience. And, uh, it was, I was hooked. Like I had enough of background to appreciate it at that point, which was kind of like an interesting way to go through the process. Um, but just hadn't killed anything for myself. And then it kind of like just was full steam ahead from there of, I was brought out with um, uh, an old boyfriend and then I immediately was like, well, I'm going, this is my day to hunt. So I'm just going to go by myself since you can't, you know, and uh, that fear wasn't really there of hunting by myself, which I guess looking back on uh, a lot of people have that kind of resistance to hunting and, um, but I knew I could always call people nearby, I guess, if I had questions or a situation. Um, and so now um, I've been very fortunate to be able to harvest a number of different animals and now actively hunting on my family's land and um, very special opportunity to take my first deer off our property uh, two years ago now. And that was probably like the most meaningful hunt to me uh and now just uh, i work in wildlife for our wildlife department at a um the main wildlife park which is a uh, facility for all main native wildlife and for injured orphaned or human dependent animals uh, as education species most of them all have some reason why they can't be back in the wild and uh, they so we're able to have the public come um, and learn about living with wildlife and what these species, you know, purpose is within our ecosystem here in Maine. And um, 
one of the reasons why I really wanted to be from Maine as a kid is I always wanted to be a lobster woman. And <laughs> three years ago, I got my recreational lobster license as a Maine resident. And so I've been every summer been able to harvest and catch my own lobsters from the ocean, which has been awesome experience to kind of learn about the sea life and ocean floor and that entire industry a little bit more. So that's kind of a long story short. <laughs> that's me. That's fantastic. Um, I have a million questions. Becca, do you have a million questions? <laughs> Yes, and I'm so glad that you talked about lobsters because I was hoping that that would come up in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh gosh. Okay, let's just head. Let's just stick with the lobsters then. Um, why did you always want to be a lobster woman? And do you make lobster tacos? <laughs> um, we. I don't know if we've made lobster tacos. I think our favorite lobster dish are lobster bacon salads. I don't don't really know why. Um, well, because I mean, lobster, lobster and bacon. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. <laughs> um, I think lobster is such a quintessential main thing um, that you get kind of burnt out on the lobster roll um, mm. phenomenon and. Uh, and this time of year, like everyone's growing their own lettuce and gardens and everything. So it just makes sense to use what you're growing out of your garden and what you're catching from the sea. Um, you can lobster year round, but I just have been doing it uh, kind of June to November when hunting season starts. But <laughs> um, it's been like a good window of time. Um, and why I wanted to lobster, it's a, that's a great question. I, the only, so I have photos of me like dressed up as a lobsterman as a kid for Halloween, um, in New Hampshire. And I don't know if it was just that it was that main thing that I, you know, I wanted to be from Maine because everyone else in my family was, and I, I'm the youngest of three, so maybe that's like a telling <laughs> thing. Um, but yeah, there wasn't, I don't think there's like a real reason. I just thought they were like really cool, like badass women that are like out there on this crazy ocean. And uh, I mean, the ocean's a crazy place, not gonna lie. Um, and thankfully, well, my boyfriend now is he's a lobsterman, so I have a very good guide when it comes to learning about this stuff. So So that walk, helps, walk us through it. What is what is a day <laughs> lobster trapping like? How do you how do you do it? So, What's the what what yeah. gets you geeked out? <laughs> so um full disclosure, as a main resident, it is this crazy system for a lobstering. Um, you either have had to have been like grandfathered into the system or have been had a license before um these crazy lottery like list systems came into place. So you can't just as an adult walk into the state of Maine and say, I want to be a lobsterman. There's like a huge list you have to be on. Um, and you have to have X amount of hours of experience signed mm -hmm. off on 
um, in order to get one. Um, unless you are a student, um, you can, if you're under 18, I believe it is, you can work towards getting your license. So I'm none of the above. Um, and I think there's some other ways that you can work on getting a license, but it's not easy. At the end of the day, it's not easy. Um, but what Maine does have is this recreational um, Maine resident license. So I can have five traps, which is not a lot at all, but it's plenty to kind of like get a taste of it all. And you still, it's a lot to still maintain and all the gear adds up as with any outdoor activity <laughs> um so you have to acquire your five metal traps and make sure they're all put together properly um you can either buy them set up or you can kind of build them yourself um and then there's rope and buoys and so each lobsterman has their own buoy colors um and so you try again having my boyfriend as a local Thurman lobsterman I kind of know like okay what colors are already in this area so that you don't duplicate someone um and that's your identification for your trap and so then you have to acquire bait from a bait dealer or from someone you know that may catch bait um and a boat obviously there's like a big ticket item there that you need to have access to um so the license itself is like not terribly expensive but you start adding all these things up and uh going with used gear is great and um and the other lovely thing about the ocean is that you lose gear very easily <laughs> too um <laughs> whether a bigger boat comes by and their rope gets stuck in their propeller and they have to cut it off. Um, or they, another lobsterman sets over your buoy and you lose it for like a week or two because it's stuck under their equipment and you kind of wait to see if it pops back up the next week once they haul through their gear. Um, and then you may have to replace it. Um, is that, is that is that bad behavior or is that just how it rolls sometimes? Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's like intentional setting, oversetting, and then there's like by accident because you didn't realize the rope was that long and okay. you thought their trap was this direction. It definitely can happen by mistake. Um, and they do, the big commercial guys, they do set very close to one another. Um, if the if the fishing is good, then everybody wants mm -hmm. their piece of the the bottom. Um, and um, so, yeah, I fish singles, so that means one buoy, one rope to one trap. Versus the bigger guys, they can fish singles if they want, um, but most of the time they'll have two buoys with ropes, and then like six or eight traps between the two on the bottom. Um, so if one buoy gets cut, luckily they still have another one. They probably can <laughs> salvage their gear. Um, so yeah, so then I'm on like a once a week rotation for hauling my traps. Um, and so it's making sure I can get bait, uh, which I use, um, pogies, or I think they're called man, Manhattan in some other places. Um, 
like the school fish, they get, they ball up and other fishermen catch them in big nets and then salt them and sell them. Um, uh, or pig hide is a new thing, which is not going to lie. It's pretty awful to deal with. It's so greasy and nasty. Um, but the flip side, it's a byproduct of another industry that they're able to use as bait, which is actually great. You know, we're using more resources instead of taking more away. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so then I, um, and there's a lot of rules with your license. Like I'm the only one that is able to like touch my traps, touch my lobsters, measure my lobsters, determine if they're keepers or not. So there's, size requirements with um the lobsters and whether they're male or female you can keep them both if they're keepers but if there's an egg bearing female um she needs to go back into the water and then if she is egg bearing you have to notch their flipper um the second flipper in on the tail they we call it a v-notch so it's a they cut a little v-notch out of her flipper and they grow back every time they shed their shell is is changing so the idea is that in a couple sheds worth which they shed a couple times a year um eventually it will go away and then she can be caught but it allows the breeding females to stay within the system Hmm. basically so yeah, it's an interesting yeah. thing. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm no pro by any means. <laughs> um, I'm just doing it definitely on like a recreational basis, but it's it's a cool thing that Mainers can do, which, um, which is kind of cool if you have a boat and um, like to be on the water. It kind of like gives us a reason to be yeah. on the water. Um, yeah. At least for me, because I didn't grow up on the ocean and did not spend, have not spent much time. And I just love to see the other stuff I catch in my traps too, whether it's crabs or starfish or other types of fish and kind of see what else is is down there for for better or for worse. There's some things I'd rather not see, but. (laughs) What are those? (laughs) Well. I mean, like, there's some creepy fish that live. I mean, I'm in, I'm fishing in pretty shallow water, but um, when the bigger operations are further out in deep water, there's some crazy fish with some gnarly teeth, and it's like, wow, huh? I might not swim in the ocean anymore. <laughs> like, I know too much, you yeah. know. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> ignorance is bliss um you know they don't bother people but it's just that you know concept I guess (laughs) um so how that's it's tell can you so you went into a little bit of detail about you said there are five things that you need to check for before determining if it's a keeper did I understand that right oh yes uh no not uh not five things there's just you have to determine um if it's so there's a measure that you have to have that determines the keeper size um on one side and then um it has to be at least that big in uh, in order to keep it which is it's about 
four inches long, I guess. I, I'm trying to think. <laughs> um, and then the other side of the same measurer um, is, I think it's six inches. Um, I'm going to have to find one now. This is going to bother me. But they, um, in Maine, you can't keep oversized lobsters where in other parts of the coast you can. So we don't, you see those pictures of these people with lobsters, like the size of their heads, like their claws are just massive. So in Maine, um, they can't keep those. And um, so it, it basically has to be like within a slot size of, it has to be over the four inches, but under the six or seven inches that it is, that the measurer is. And so each lobsterman has to have this measure with you. And as part of the regulations, like if you're stopped by Marine Patrol, you have to prove that each, you know, they can randomly check all your lobsters. And um, if there's any short than those or oversized, you would be fined mm-hmm. for each one. So it's a big deal. And personally, I'm like, if it's too close to wonder, you know, I always yes. throw them back because it's yeah. not I'm doing this for fun and that's a bonus if we get a meal out of it. Um, and so it's not worth it to, to risk. So, <laughs> What um, is the reasoning behind Maine not uh, letting people keep the bigger ones? Is it, is it, yeah, I'll just, I'll not go into more detail and just let you answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll be honest. I'm not sure I know the answer truly to that question. Um, I think because Massachusetts and New Hampshire, I believe you can. Um, I think it just has to do with like the idea of breeding. Um, but also, in all honesty, they don't taste very good. They're more, they're older, obviously. Um, and they're, it's very tough meat, typically. I think people love the idea of that massive lobster. Um, it's so cool, but it's, really not much to write home about (laughs) fascinating um you're very like i i appreciate the thoroughness with which you answer questions (laughs) because i feel sorry no 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 that was sincere (laughs) that was sincere because um i like the questions that were popping into my head were addressed shortly thereafter and i really do appreciate that (laughs) it's awesome because I was going to ask about other things that you'd caught in your trap and you talked about that (laughs) it's just fantastic how many uh like I guess is it fairly consistent to have a trap with a lobster in it or uh like I guess how many do you usually harvest when you go out and check them that's a great question um so so my first so this is my third year um lobstering so my first one my first haul of the season um (laughs) I got I think it was 18 or 19 lobsters out of five traps so keepers and I was like this is awesome I am like killing it and my boyfriend is like um this is not normal do not get used to this (laughs) um (laughs) like okay, really wish this hadn't happened on your first. Um, it's kind of like hunting too. Like if people, their only experiences are like always being successful the first time they go out, like that is not 
the norm. <laughs> yep. I just, um, feels like it was all that, like the, the pent up luck from wanting to have been a lobster woman for so long. Like, <laughs> right. I, I think that's <laughs> paid off karma. Conclusion. I will tell him that. Okay. <laughs> um, but, um, and so that season was a fairly consistently good hauling season or catching season. Um, and then last summer, uh, had a very poor season, um, and barely catching any at all. If keepers, you know, a lot of short lobsters, um, and I'm a nerd, so I keep a log book of, and again, it's probably cause I only have five traps, but, um, I keep a log of how many keepers I have and how many shorts and then males and females. And then if I had any like anomalies, if I had a notched female or a lot of starfish or a lot of crabs or anything new that I caught in the, in the traps, um, which is just fun to kind of keep track of because I've been keeping my traps in the same spot for the past three years just because it's easy to access and they do tend to be a good spot so um but they say what the lobstermen say is that if you're getting a pound of trap which is about one keeper lobster then you're making money um which sounds crazy but i think it's added up over you know they all have commercial fishermen have 800 traps um so if you're doing the math that way after they've paid for fuel and bait and all their help um i guess they say that that is kind of the the going rate so if you're making if you get one keeper lobster per trap you're doing well so 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 far this season um i looked this morning i've hauled five times already and i've had five uh two two hauls of five two of six and one of 11 so we're doing pretty good this season yeah so (laughs) nice yeah that sounds amazing i haven't had lobster in a really long time and this is making me miss it (laughs) (laughs) not much easy access in montana but you know you never know (laughs) you you never know (laughs) um but i do remember because i used to live in massachusetts and when you said lobster roll Uh i had this distinct memory of this you know this food cart lobster roll on the beach that i used to go to up near gloucester and uh oh just good memories (laughs) (laughs) i feel like it's almost better to just not eat lobster in montana Mm -hmm. because it was (laughs) true really when you get real lobster back in massachusetts (laughs) yeah make the trip to wherever you're gonna have lobster <laughs> yes it'll be better it'll be worth it <laughs> it's true I do tend to plan my vacations based on the food I'm, I'm not gonna lie <laughs> awesome I had some questions to going back to how you got started as a hunter but before I do that Becca lingering lobster questions <laughs> um, no I'm glad that you clarified so I was going to ask about the notch 
lobsters because I saw you posted on Instagram the other day about I think you were notching one or you found notched one so I'm glad that you cleared that up it's really interesting to me how they differ yeah females because I mean sea creatures are just so foreign to me I was born in Ohio in the Midwest and now I live in Idaho so both landlocked states so anything with the ocean is just so fascinating to me and there's there's a lot of ocean and a lot that we don't know about the ocean and um yeah the not female thing is uh I mean they had to come up with one way I guess to manage the breeding population and I guess that's what they came up with so I like it it seems both effective and creative yeah I I mean you're not I'm sure they feel it but I guess it's probably not that bad I don't know. <laughs> is it like? Um, I mean, I kind of imagined it like a fingernail. Yeah, yeah. So you're definitely it's the shell, but I believe, and uh, I think if you're doing it properly, it's more of like a heavy duty fingernail, and you might nick the meat. Okay. Because um, it's only the little. Uh, so they have a notcher on your measurer. So this measurer oh, is very this important. It's a very tool. handy tool. Yeah, <laughs> it's very handy. And um, you are advised to tie like a buoy onto it because they get thrown overboard often. Or you need to have multiple of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the bigger operations and whatnot. Um, I did throw mine over once, but it had a buoy, so that was <laughs> convenient. <laughs> No, that um, was well planned. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, again, I am fortunate to have a good mentor nice. who does yep. it for a living, so. right? Who can keep you from <laughs> help help uh, limit the damage and some of those mistakes we all make in the beginning. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> it might be considered cheating a little bit, but <laughs> it's been. He tries to let me, you know, figure things out the hard way too, but he also. It pains him to watch certain things. So he, he helps. Oh God! Not do that like yeah. that. I, you know, I think we've all felt the grimace, even if we haven't necessarily seen it. We've felt it when they're like, "Right, mm, yeah, like that." You're gonna do it like that, okay? Yep. Right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um. So you had talked about going out hunting on your own um, pretty early in your experience as a hunter. And mm-hmm. I'm curious because I think for a lot of new hunters, part of the um, hesitancy to go hunting alone involves uh, having a lack of confidence in knowing what to do with the animal once it's down, right? Like even if you're confident mm. in the woods, mm-hmm. um, in the hunt up until, and perhaps through the shot, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about what happens next. And I'm curious if your experience with the outfitter in Wyoming, cause you mentioned uh, helping quarter, um, mm-hmm. if that helped alleviate some of that for you. Uh, that's, it's a great thought, I guess. With you asking that right now is making me realize that. So, to be for those who don't know, I guess so in Wyoming and out west, you know, there's a lot of public land and a lot of 
open access land for hunting. Um, and in Maine, there's not at all. <laughs> it's mostly all private land. Um, even the big chunks are technically privately owned. Um, yeah, by like paper companies. So like the North Maine woods is like a huge area, but it's all technically privately owned, but like everyone goes there to moose and bear hunt and everything. And so I'm wondering if the part of my confidence is knowing that I wasn't far from like at the end of the day, I could, there was always going to be someone that could come help me. Um, which now I'm realizing feeling very like fortunate, I guess, um, with that, but also with an outfitter in Wyoming, it was, I, I guess there too, like I always had someone to call or like, I I guess I was the one they were calling, um, (laughs) when, (laughs) when they had a kill and then it was like next step with, you know, and I was working alongside their guide. I was just kind of the extra set of hands. Um, but I think I would now kind of realizing this, I probably would, even if you don't have a hunting buddy to go with, uh, physically, but you know, of people that hunt, I think even like saying, Hey, you know, uh, Mary Lou, can you, I'm just letting you know, I'm going hunting today. Do you think you'd be available for questions if I had them, you know, and if you had cell service or, or whatever, even that I feel like is a huge asset, you know, rather than just being out there by yourself. Um, and I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if that's, where the confidence was and I mean I would go I went out once you know with or I've been out multiple times with mentors and friends and whatnot and you know been guided of like okay if this happens this is what you're going to do and kind of walking us through it and then when push came to shove I think it was like well this is my opportunity and knowing things can go wrong and that's very common, you know, like you make a shot, but it doesn't kill them. I, that was, um, I think it was my second deer I ever shot. It, I shot high and ultimately it would have died, but, um, I panicked and got down to it and was like, oh my God, it's still alive. I don't know what to do. <laughs> like that was my reaction as I'm holding a rifle, you know, um, I don't know what to do. (laughs) And it was, it was a horrible experience to be honest. So, you know, it blinking at you, you know, and, um, and calling a friend and being like, now what do I do? Where do like, where do I take the next shot? And I don't actually remember kind of what exactly happened, but, um, you know, being guided of where, what the next steps were, was super helpful for me. Um, but just having that person to call, even though they couldn't be there right next to me, but they're still a resource from afar. And I think in situations like that, when, when emotions are so high and you don't have that experience to draw on somebody to, to, yeah, to, 
think for you in that moment is uh, right yeah and and they're gonna do the best they can obviously without being there (laughs) yep yep yeah yeah I like that I think we should start like a on-call mentor network (laughs) we can't always be in the field with with a new hunter but perhaps we can be on right right yeah like the the snow chain like when school gets canceled you get the Mm, the the phone like Mm -hmm. phone tree uh i'm gonna becca do you i'm gonna take us to a quick break but do you have any questions before i do that um i guess my i'm coming at this question I'm not saying I've never lived somewhere where there's predominantly private lands because I grew up in the Midwest, but I'm curious, Emily, you know, your first experience hunting was in Wyoming, not necessarily you were being the hunter, but you were there in the scene, which is like you said, predominantly public land. So you don't really have to worry about the dynamics of, oh, there's somebody else's property, you know, a mile to my west or, you know, that, you know, timber line right there is the boundary between my land and my neighbor's land. So I'm curious how it's been for you, you know, really coming into your own as a hunter in a state where there's mostly private land. Um, And do you feel like you've had to develop any other skills just genuinely out of curiosity? Because I think about hunting in a place like Maine, which is somewhere that I think is absolutely beautiful and is you know, my parents are thinking about retiring up in back in New England where they're both from. And I think long-term about potentially living somewhere like that. But I'm like, I don't even know the first thing about hunting on private land, which is like silly to think about. But I'm curious if you feel like there are certain things that you've, you know, gained as a hunter from hunting private land and having to sort of navigate that. Uh, so I... I know the answer that I want to give you, <laughs> but I am. <laughs> but the answer I have is so I'm very fortunate that my family, my grandfather, um, and then passed on to my dad, had a very large chunk of land, um, like just over a hundred acres that I now live on, um, and hunt on. So the navigating of hunters has actually been like the opposite of what most people struggle with in Maine. Um, so the, I think the answer you're looking for is in what they actually teach in hunter safety or they used to when you did them in person, um, hunter safety was, there was a huge section on asking for permission. And I don't know if they do that in other States or not, but the, focused on walking up to people's doors introducing yourself why you're there providing all of the information that's going to make someone trust you and feel comfortable with you on their property is a huge thing that they hit home in hunter safety and because I took hunter safety as an adult I guess it's it's very in, uh, in my forefront of like okay like that's not that hard like if you're not a jerk and you're not trespassing or you're not littering and you're not like, this shouldn't be difficult. Um, granted, 
Um, I mean, <laughs> a lot of out-of-staters that have moved to Maine recently um, that aren't necessarily pro-hunting. Um, mm-hmm. There's That's been like a recent struggle, I know, for friends of mine um, that have been dealing with this. And also just the density of hunters in kind of like the southern Maine area where, where all the deer are. Um, that everybody wants to hunt in the same place and so it's it's a challenge because I hear like my closest friends super nice couple you know just trying to fill their freezer and you know they're not picky on size and we don't have any uh, we have or minimal size restrictions for whitetails in Maine and you know so it's and they have a really hard time getting permission for places to hunt and the places that aren't posted. Um, so if your land is not posted in the state of Maine, anybody is welcome to hunt on it. So it's this weird um, game, I guess. So if your land is posted, no trespassing or by permission only or whatever, uh, you have to follow those rules and, cannot access it but if it is not posted technically anybody can hunt on it so you get a lot of yeah and what I've learned is that like it was Massachusetts one other New England state it's like the opposite so people that are moving here from other states you know like they don't necessarily know that and so then could lead to people you know not um allowing hunters to hunt on their land and it's it's a it's a hot topic in Maine um we also cannot hunt on Sundays um we're one of the last states to have that um conundrum floating around I guess um and a lot of that has to do with private landowners um and you know knowing having their land protected on a day that they can access without worrying about it and um and multiple other reasons but so it's i don't know if that kind of answers your question of i think people do struggle with asking for permission and people will bring them you know venison or whatever like a they'll bring a gift in like a a peace offering you know um to ask for permission or if they get a harvest you know they always bring the landowner part of the kill or anything like that and um, I think a lot of people do it right and have built really great relationships with private landowners um but then there's always people out there that make it really challenging for other people to gain permission to hunt places so it's fortunately something I haven't had to deal with other than dealing with people on our property that you know it's it's a it's a double-edged sword I want people to hunt (laughs) and to learn but we also have two or three active hunters on our property and to feel safe and you know controlled on your property it's uh um you know, I don't want to be the jerk that says, no, you can't hunt here, but, but I am, I guess, because, <laughs> because I hunt there, you know, and, um, 
it's tough. It, it, it's a tough spot. To, it's not impossible by any means. Um, and if you're a bow hunter, you have much uh, better options on like the coastline um, and the islands in the um, Casco Bay area. Uh, I know in the southern Maine area, uh, there's a lot more opportunity for bow hunting uh, than there is rifle hunting. Yeah, interesting. No, I was just curious. There's no right or wrong answer, Emily. Don't worry. I was yeah. <laughs> I was just really curious because I've only been hunting for a few years now. I think this will be my fifth year and it's all been on public land with the exception mm -hmm. of some waterfowl hunting on private land. So um, I'm always really impressed with people that manage to sort of navigate the, the system of hunting private. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, an evolving challenge for everybody, probably everywhere, you know. Um, but I suggest not dressing in camo and introducing yourself to the landowners. That's my word of advice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to pause there for half a beat and hear a message from our sibling podcast at NWF Outdoors. And we will be right back. Uh, for hits and misses. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts and at nwfoutdoors.org. All right, welcome back. Uh, before we dive into hits and misses, Emily, is there anything else you wanted to talk about or mention? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I learned so much in this podcast um, and uh, have a new appreciation for lobster hauling. So thanks for that insight. <laughs> Hits and misses. Are, yeah. Our weekly closer. What have you been aiming for and how did it go? Becca. Um, so I'm in a constant back and forth struggle with a deer. Oh. that has decided my garden is a nice place for them to dine in the middle of the night while I'm sleeping. Oh. So um, oh. I'm trying to figure out how to deter this animal from eating all my plants. It's been, um, it's like selectively eating the lettuce, strawberries, tomatoes, and broccoli. So I've been getting <laughs> a lot of squash and cucumbers still. So that's good at least. But um, I'm trying, so we're going to build a bigger garden next year with a taller fence that keeps deer out permanently. But this year I'm just trying to get through the rest of the growing season. So I'm doing some weird things I'm like testing out some theories. I'm like, you know, I bet deer don't want to walk on slick surfaces. So when I bought this house, we discovered like, I kid you not probably 40 um, highway signs just like strewn about in all the tall grass. <laughs> and so I laid them all out around the garden. I'm like, maybe the deer won't want to walk on this weird metal surface. <laughs> I feel like there's um, a little bit of like 
serendipitousness about that if it worked did it work (laughs) (laughs) I know well the jury's out if it's worked uh we'll see I just started this a few days ago but I also got some netting um and I can always put that over it as a last resort but I would like to keep things open for now um Mm -hmm. just for like ease of access and um to make sure that every pollinator can get in there but Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a struggle. When I moved in here, I was like, oh, so great. We've got deer on the property. And now I'm like, oh, my God, freaking deer on the property. <laughs> I feel like that's, that's like the trial and learning curve of every landowner. <laughs> They're like, oh, the wildlife is yeah. so pretty. The wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cohabitation is difficult no matter if it's with the same species or different species. I am trying so hard, but yes, it is difficult. Oh, I really like the creativity with that sign solution. And I hope it works because again, it feels just like it, it's got to, right? Like why else would you have so many signs on your property if not for this very situation? I'll send you a picture. It's pretty funny with like a massive stop sign in the middle of this garden. Um, I've, got, I've got a little bit of OCD. And so I like to keep things pretty neat and tidy back there. So it's all I can do to not pick up the signs and throw them back in the garage because they're just like such nice or laying all around the, the garden but hopefully they work <laughs> that's funny oh goodness I will re- I will ask about that next time <laughs> Emily what have you been aiming for and how did it go um I have been on um I've been taking some time off from work lately and focusing on well, just like a couple of days, uh, but trying to just kind of sleep a little bit more. It seems like it's been a very busy time. The summer in Maine is kind of like, oh my gosh, all these things happening at once because we don't probably much like Montana. We don't get a whole lot of summer. Um, but apparently right now when we do, it's going to be really hot. Um, and we have baby turkeys being born. We raise turkeys mm-hmm. for meat and eggs. I have honeybees I need to tend to and figure out what's next for them and the garden is exploding and so it's like sleep has been on my (laughs) priority list lately and just kind of like regrouping and it's it's been going well I think I need a few more days but (laughs) um getting there so that's awesome. uh, are baby turkeys as cute as they sound or are they actually pretty ugly like other baby birds I can't decide in my head um well I feel like it's like a personal question because <laughs> <laughs> because I um if you follow me on social media I love turkeys so <laughs> um they're kind of because they're just so prehistoric at mm-hmm. all ages um I don't know that cute usually goes to turkey like ever but um, <laughs> they're pretty cute right now because they're like chicks like little tiny chicks right now but they'll go through yeah. their awkward teenage years here shortly and <laughs> where they're pretty funny looking and kind of like dinosaurs and then turn into adult dinosaurs so <laughs> <laughs> if people well, wanted to eggs must be wonderful so that's lucky <laughs> Are, are they big are they bigger than chicken eggs uh turkey eggs yes. yeah yeah they're yeah they're like one and a half chicken eggs 
So and last, the sh- shells are really hard. <laughs> last week's podcast, we talked to, uh, to Sarah Top was our co-host, and she talked about her four new chickens. And I mm. told her that she's going to be a washing chicken eggs. And if she needed any recipe ideas, let me know, because there's this great YouTube site called um, Ita- uh, Pasta Grannies. <laughs> oh. It's like Italian grandmother's <laughs> cooking um, homemade pasta. And pasta takes a lot of eggs. Um, where was I going with this? I like that there's an egg theme in our podcast lately. That's really all I was trying oh. to say. <laughs> <laughs> do they lay? Yeah. So if you have those, if they're that big, man, imagine what you could do with eggs like that. It's amazing. <laughs> they're pretty good. I love them. Um, and this is the first round with this group of turkeys and so at first they were laying like all over God's green earth. So we were getting way more eggs than we were could handle. And then, then they were doing organized clutches. And then that's when we let them sit and um, have four chicks so far. So, oh, so, yeah. That just made Never me really dull happy. <laughs> so it's, yeah, that's exciting. Uh, my hits it was a, a bit of a hit and a bit of a miss. I um, mentioned a while back that I had made the decision to um, hire somebody to teach me to fly fish so I could increase my capacity both as a caster, but also as like my ability to read the water and to mend the line and to determine what type of fly to use and just troubleshoot in the moment. And so I went out um, last week with a friend of mine and Shalon Hastings, who owns Fly Fisher Adventures out of Helena, Montana. And we spent the whole day on the river and it was absolutely amazing. Um, I learned so much and it was interesting because we also just had our fly fishing tactics and just kind of um, online series where we invited a bunch of experts to come on and give like a fly fishing 101. And as I was listening to that series, I'm, I was just overwhelmed once again with all of the information that you mm. that you get when you're a new angler um and it's all necessary information right it, like it's not all information that you're going to implement perfectly the first time obviously because that's not how it goes but it is information that you need to be aware of at least and being on the river with Shalon for this like 2.0 again it was like there's just so much information and so much to consider at all points um of, right. of your time on the river and so I was almost overwhelmed all over again, but also just really appreciative of like, that's part of what's cool about fly fishing, right? That's because it, and about hunting in general, but there's, there's a lot of complex interacting factors that need to be considered and decisions that need to be based upon those factors. And so it's, it, it is a lifelong learning process. Like you will never know it all. Um, so that was a cool realization and had again just a great day on the river the miss came afterwards when i was like i've got shalon here this is gonna be fun we're gonna we're gonna try and record another live podcast uh like i did with mandela um a while back and we sat and we recorded and i thought it was golden and total user failure there was no audio on the file (laughs) So great conversation, you know, in the middle of a field where you could probably hear the crickets jumping onto my face. And, you know, there, it it was 
anyway, I'm inviting Shalon back and we'll have another conversation that won't be in a field. It'll be um, virtually and remotely recorded. But <laughs> let me tell you, it was the best podcast I've ever done. <laughs> Nobody will ever hear it. But it was, yeah, that was, that was a small miss. But on the whole, the day was a huge hit. Awesome. Maybe you were just meant to, to keep all of that to yourself. That day is yours and it's yours alone. <laughs> right, right. That's just for me. Yeah. I'll take that as a win. All right, Emily, thanks again for the conversation. This was wonderful. It was great to talk with you. Yeah, you guys too. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Becca, good luck with the deer. Thanks, Marcia. <laughs> <laughs> to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. <laughs>